Road to Cinema's final draft screenwriting software giveaway continues. All you have to do is follow us on Twitter, at Jog Road, like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Jog Road, or subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions. All three ways enter you into the contest. We'll be announcing our first winner at the end of March. So stay tuned and see if you can win a free voucher to purchase final draft screenwriting software brought to you by our friends at Final Draft. Welcome to episode number 27 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring Oscar-winning screenwriter Tom Shulman, who won an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for the 1989 drama Dead Poets Society, starring Robin Williams. We'll be discussing his work on that film, as well as the comedy What About Bob, which stars Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfuss as a therapist and a patient pitted against one another. Tom also takes us through his detailed writing process and his inspiration behind creating Professor Keating, the character in Dead Poet Society, which was indelibly played by the late Robin Williams. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at jogroad, for the latest updates, and you can also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash jogroad. And now we join Oscar-winning screenwriter Tom Shulman as he discusses his work on Dead Poets Society and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. In that same year, 1989, you had two films at Disney. You had Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and then Dead Poets Society, which was a very personal story, a very personal script for you. Uh, so I'm just sort of curious as far as your working process uh, transitioning from something that's more of a writing assignment like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids to, uh, you know, working on a, a screenplay that's so much your story and, uh, you know, your point of view completely. Right. Uh, I probably wouldn't call it a transition. I mean, I sold them. They, they bought Dead Poets Society. At that point, they were, in, you know, sort of the, the process began for them of trying to, to cast it and, you know, get it, get it up and going. So there was quite a down where sort of nothing was happening. And then all of a sudden, out of... And I think that I've already uh, gotten involved in What About Bob? They had hired to write that, too. So, and, we, you know, we, we were still just in the early stages of talking about it. And then all of a sudden, this, this rewrite came up, and it was, today is Thursday. You have to say yes, now commit to this. And we want a new script by a week from Sunday. And, you know, <laughs> and that's it. You know, so there was no, the transition was was just, why in the world do they want me for this? You know, in my first part of my, but the second part, I guess, was, okay, I guess there are a lot of young kids in Dead Poets Society, so maybe they think I can write kids. So Dead Poets Society was sort of, um, it was almost like a, a writing sample, and they read that, and they thought, well, we could use you to sort of work on other projects that we have. This was all at, at Disney. Yeah, they had bought it. They, you know, they had committed to making it. But then, you know, it's—I mean, nothing happens overnight. I, be, I believe that that um, I'm trying. I'm just trying to remember the timeline. I, I think that that Honey uh, shot, and then Dead Poets was started shooting a, about a month later. It might have been the other way around. I can't remember. Um, but they, they they were released the same within a few weeks of each other, so they must have been made close to the same time, but it's, 
Um, so I'm curious with uh, Dead Poet Society, uh, what was your inspiration in writing it? And uh, was that that prep school in the film, was that based at all at a, at a school that you went to as a kid? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had, I mean, I started the film, uh, started writing it because I had a, an amazing theater teacher named Harold Clerman, who you may have heard of, but he was a... Oh, the public theater. Yeah, uh, yes, founder of group theater. Actually. Oh, group theater. Yeah, uh, and, you know, sort of grand old presences on Broadway. By the time I met him, he was my, I, I went to a place called the Actors and Directors Lab in, in Los Angeles, and the guy that ran it was Jack Garfine, who was a brilliant teacher, uh, director, and his teacher was Errol Clerman. So Clerman would come every couple of months, review the work, and uh, <clears throat> sort of, you know, see how his student was doing. But the work of his student was our work, you know, so, and Clerman would, would usually come, see the scenes that we would put on, or the little movies that we were making, and then he would stand on stage and launch into these amazing sometimes 45-minute, you know, rambling but brilliant uh, discussions of theater and art movies and, you know, lot and history and everything else. Just an incredible teacher, and I thought I would write something sort of based on him, but uh, I think I started writing a, a, a draft where all the, the students were in that acting school, and that sort of went nowhere. And then uh, we're thinking back, I had a great teacher in high school named Sam Pickering, character of uh, Professor Keaty, uh what was sort of your, did you have, uh, I know you were talking about your teacher, you had in mind uh, the acting school for that part, uh, but as far as sort of his, the philosophy of Professor Keaty and his passion for poetry and his passion for literature, uh, was that something that, that you had had as well? Or Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I was always sort of, I mean, you know, I wasn't, wasn't uh, uh, a great student when I was in high school, but to me, the the extent to which the the literature and poetry you know, I was reading and the poetry, etc., informed my was uh, sort of the the key to my um, you know love for it. So um, I think that you know somehow over the years, the 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 lessons or the the, the lectures that the teacher was giving were you know things that I. That resonated for me that I believed in, you know. So I was able to put put 
I don't know whether I can't really know whether my uh, school teacher Sam Pickering, you know, was of the same mind or not. I remember I was uh, the movie came out. Uh, he and I a panel together to talk about the film, and he started by saying something like, "You know, if I believed in carpe diem, I would be dead by or something." You know, but he, <laughs> he you know, sort of he was in, in a very nice way, sort of distance himself from being quite so, uh, uh, you know, like the teacher in the, in the movie. But but, but I, I think I captured the essence of him in many ways. You know, he was an, a, a, a mischievous, antic force, you know. So, uh, and to that extent, you know, that the, he, Pickering and Keating share that. The specific messages of the teacher, I don't know, you know. Yeah, one of my, uh, my favorite scenes in the film is... Uh, the one between Ethan Hawke and Robin Williams, where Robin Williams is sort of trying to inspire Ethan Hawke and really sort of get him out of his shell to connect more with the poetry and everything that uh, that he's being taught and sort of embracing, uh, you know, to be more free. I was wondering sort of your inspiration behind writing that scene and sort of your point of view on it. Yeah, I mean, the, the character of Ethan Hawke uh, taught really more me than any character in the film, you know. I, I was pretty shy, terrified to talk in public, and you know, had to be coached out of and coaxed out of my shell. So, um, and I think I sort of knew from experience that you know, you sort of have to just <laughs> sort of let it out. Okay, you know, there's a sort of it's like jumping off the board. You just you, there's a point at which you just gotta go. So, um, I, you know, I knew that we needed to see the the talent that that character had somewhere in the movie, even if even if he couldn't access it very often. So, you know, that, that scene just seemed to be, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't really remember how I got to that, honestly. Um, it, it uh, you know, it never happened to me, but, but um, you know, it might have been from watching acting exercises. I remember once Harold Clerman was working with one of the students at the Actors and Directors Lab, and and this kid was doing a scene from an Odette's play, and in the play, the character is supposed to come on stage in his underwear, carrying his pants for his mother to iron, and the actor came on stage, and Clerman said, "What are you What are you doing? Are you supposed to?" And he said, "No, no, I'm I'm too shy to take off my pants," and Clerman made him take off his pants. Right there, and do the scene, and this very shot kid sort of transformed, you know, right in front of our on stage, and and did the scene quite well. But I think that that something of that what Keating makes Todd do. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's such a powerful moment in the film, and uh, I was also curious too about. Uh, some other moments uh, as far as sort of the, the suicide of Robert Sean Leonard mm-hmm. was that based on anyone that you had known in high school who had sort of had that pressure from his parents or uh, sort of come, came from a conservative background at all or yeah I, I that character is based on a very close friend of mine who uh, moved out town we were both about 10 or 11 so but I always felt like he had a father similar to Neil's father and he had an extraordinary talent for someone, you know, at, at that age. He was a great pianist, a wonderful 
working on something that's so personal for you, uh, like Dead Poet Society, and then a uh, director comes on and is going in to execute that into a film, uh, do you feel that you, especially in this film, that you have a sort of a close collaboration process with a director? I'm curious, um, when Robin Williams came on to play Professor Keaty, uh, did you feel at all that you had to sort of tailor the character at all for Robin, or was he collaborative in terms of um, shaping the character to his point of view as well? Or- yeah, I would say the latter. I mean, I, I, I think, if anything, when we first started the first day of shooting, Robert, Robin was a little bit too uh, respectful of the lot. You know, he was he was... He knew them, and they were there was something just a little bit not his about. So Peter did an improvisation with Robin, which is in the movie, the, where he basically said, you know, let's let's not shoot a scene. Let's let's have let's do a scene where you come in and just teach the class anything you want. And Robin said, well, what will I do? I don't know. Teach them a little Shakespeare. You want to read to them? So they found a book, and Peter shot it, and from that came came this series of shots where Robin like John Wayne, he reads for them from a book, and it, that improvisation connected Robin up to what the teacher's doing, which is, you know, it's a dialogue, even if the, the, the kids are talking back, there's this, this connection, and obviously something Robin had to do well, because he was a stand-up comedian, so uh, from that point on, Robin made those lines, his added stuff, you know, things like the dinging of the bell with his foot, you know, whenever answer you know just it just he just really connected up to it in a great way so um and you know it was never an issue again um yeah and so you know to me that he was the that that perfect blend of the comic and the, the dramatic you know yeah no i always felt there was something that really um like he seemed so loose in the part, like it really was part of it. it. wasn't as if he was trying to sort of step into the character's shoes. It sort of always felt like he was the character, and he was sort of not. He was using himself to sort of exemplify uh, who Keedy was in a way. Yeah, I think Robin said that he had had a teacher too, and he went to a boarding school I think in Michigan, and he had a teacher. So you know that, that in his mind's eye, like this one, you know. So, um, but. Yeah, I was wondering um, as well. Carpe diem has become such a, a, a popular catchphrase, and people connect it so much with Dead po- Dead Poet Society. Uh, was that something that had been told to you through through a class or through a particular teacher? Or must uh, have been. I mean, yeah. you know, it just it's it's one of those things where you're writing a scene and the teacher's making a point, and where all these things come from, you know. Whether they're, you know, from your past or just something you look up at the moment because you need something, or I, I really don't 
notes, you know, sort of on the fly about any and everything that I can think of having to do with the movie. Sometimes the notes are all seen, sometimes they're just ideas for a scene or thoughts about the character, and I get to a couple of hundred pages of notes in the computer, then I, I slap them up and I kind of turn them on. Each paragraph becomes like one of those uh, index cards you'd see on, on a bulletin board, except that I put them on the floor of, the, of my office. And I just basically start building the script that way. I pick one up and go, oh, this is a beginning idea. This is from for the first third. This one's something for the end, blah, blah, blah. And then in doing that, you know, obviously you have to connect them all together and so forth. You're, you know, it's sort of like playing with tinker toys on the floor. You don't, you're just sort of lost in the, in the, in the game and, um, or, or in the plot. So I don't know, you know, the, these things just kind of, Uh, it's interesting. It's sort of um, so. It's sort of like a free association with everything that that you relate to what you think the the screenplay is going to be. Um, yeah. So, do you have any idea as far as sort of the direction of the narrative, or are you just sort of? Oh yeah, no, but, that, but I, I don't slice all things up and put them on the floor until I can kind of feel like I've got a beginning, middle, and and the story. You know, although you know, kind of vague is is you know the structure of it is is in my brain I go okay this I know what's going to happen it's going to start with this it's going to end here and you know basically this is how to get there so uh, so it's free association with a structure in place yeah and then um as far as dead poet society um you know the ending of the film is just so moving where the students stand up on their desks and they're so behind professor Keaty and uh you know it's just it's such a powerful moment um I was sort of curious about that, you know, writing that, writing that in the script, and then seeing it being executed in the final film. As far as what your expectations were, writing it, and then versus sort of seeing the finished product of that last scene. Yeah, that was it. Was pretty much exactly as I imagined it, and you know, it was an interesting thing because I, I guess when I was writing the first, when I was laying those cards out, the, the strips out on the floor, I think my first instinct was because I, it wasn't satisfied with the ending, but I thought, well, there'll be some sort of trial or hearing for the teacher at the school. You know, there'll be a disciplinary hearing or something, and they'll bring the students in and, you know, a little trial. And then I thought, you know, that, that just, I kept thinking, that's just not going to work because they'll just fire him. I mean, it's they don't need to do that. But, but I kept moving forward, you know, thinking, well, that's close, something will happen. And then I got to the point where I started writing that scene and it just felt really odd. And then at one point, one of the characters just, you know, got frustrated <laughs> at, at what was happening in the proceeding and stood up on his chair. And then I went, oh, okay, okay, I, now I know the ending. So, you know, then I moved it to the classroom and, you know, what, what what's in the movie is, is, was, was what I did. But, uh, and I would say, you know, the, the, the ending was really faithful to what, uh, you know the the, uh, the accolades the movie received, and uh, you went on to win an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, what was that like going through that awards process? And uh, you know, how do you look back on that? It was fun. You know, at the time, I don't know. It just it, it didn't really. I don't think the awards process was quite as uh, present in the minds of everybody. Like like it is now, you know. There just seems to be there. There weren't campaigns.
and then just go, you know, but, but it's just kind of, it wasn't, it just didn't have the same, for me anyway, uh, maybe because I just didn't have any, any thought that it could really happen, and then suddenly the, the film got updated, and there were parties, and they were fun, you know, to get to meet some of these folks who, you know, you've, you've kind of looked up to a creative career, and then, you know, winning for me was a little bit like top of the world, and then back to reality immediately, because uh, my presenter was Jane Fonda, who had just sort of come back from a uh, few years of being away from Hollywood, and she was uh, uh, sort of had a, had had a makeover. She was now with Ted Turner, so uh, the press was very interested in her. And so after she presented me the award, we got in an elevator and went down into the basement. I think we're at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, and and there was a stage set up, and she came out and introduced me to the press who we were sitting in bleachers right in front of us and she said you know this is Tom Schulman just won for Oscar for Dead Poets Society you know uh, do you have any questions and immediately people started going Jane what's life with Ted Jane what are you going to do next are you going to do another movie Jane she went wait 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 stop this is Tom's moment not my moment please direct your questions to, to Tom it was a pause someone said Tom what's it like getting an Oscar from Jane <laughs> <laughs> and she laughed at she said that's enough and we walked off stage, and so you kind of immediately realize, you know, where where the real attention is in, in Hollywood. So it was it was kind of a good good um, um, ego whack, you know. So uh, and you know the next day, I back at work on what about Bob? So um, it was you know just sort of back to the back to work. Yeah. But uh, I think what's incredible is that, you know, the, the legacy of Dead Poets Society on the culture and how it just has sustained over the years. I mean, uh, I think there was an Apple commercial for iPads last year and it had yeah, yeah. Robin Williams speech in it, uh, you know, which is absolutely incredible that that has sort of permeated the culture that much. I remember, I think I was watching a basketball game or a football game and it came up and I just went, God, this sounds familiar. Hmm. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. So they they never told you that they were using uh, Disney no. or anyone. Wow. And I I assume that if they did have to license anything for it, they did that from Disney. So. Um, oh, so the so as far as sort of Writers Guild rules or anything, I guess sort of Disney has ownership of the property, so they can yeah. sort of license it out. That's right. Um, so I was going to ask you about uh, what about Bob, which you know I think is probably one of the funniest movies out there and uh, kind of a lot of enjoyment out of it. Uh, so I believe that Laura Ziskin and her husband, Alvin Sargent, they had written the story. Yep. So was that sort of a treatment or was there a script at all there at the very uh, beginning? No, it was a treatment. It was kind of a, I don't remember. It was, it was, um, yeah, I think it was more just the, you know, they had the idea of what happens when psychiatrists in New York, as they, all do go on vacation for the whole month of all. What about these patients who really, really need help? So uh, they had this idea, Bob. What, well, what about Bob? What's going to happen to Bob? So, um, and I don't really remember what, I know that they had a treatment, and I don't recall what what in the treatment made it to the movie, you know. But uh, uh, but it was, we had a, we had a great time working on that. I just talked, laughed, and it was fun. 
Yeah, I was curious, uh, you know, some sort of big, uh, sort of like one of the running jokes in the movie is baby steps in that, in that book. Uh, was that something that was always sort of consistent for you when you were writing it to uh, have that book that uh, Dr. Leo Marvin wrote be such a centerpiece of the film? Yeah, I mean, it seemed to me that, that if, if the story was going to work, Marvin needed to be sort of at the peak of his career when Bob enters his life, you know, so that, that you know, how far he falls funny. So I thought, you know, he needs a book, and the book ought to resonate with Bob, you know, it ought to be actually helpful. Um, so, and then, of course, you know, he'll get to be on Good Morning America, and, and you know, Bob ruined that, and so forth, but... So the notion of baby steps, although in some sense silly, you know, it's got, it seemed to me like, at least for the scene anyway, was something that, that could persuade Bob that, you know, he had found someone who really could help him. Yeah, I was curious too, um, you know, having such a strong presence like Bill Murray uh, playing Bob, uh, was there any collaboration there as far as um, uh, Bill and yourself sort of sculpting lines or... Uh, developing the character in any way? Uh, we, we worked for, uh, I think, the day after the Oscars. I flew to, back to New York and, and spent the weekend with Bill. And uh, as I recall, he was very, uh, he had way more notes on the second half of the script than he did on the first. Um, and, you know, we, he, he uh, uh, I, you know, it was kind of an off and on thing because I don't think we started shooting for about eight or nine. Were you on set at all uh, during shooting? Mm-mm. No. And uh, as far as um, Richard Dreyfuss's character, do you work at all with him in, in sculpting uh, Leo Marvin at all? Uh, uh, Richard came on about, I think, maybe just a couple weeks before we started shooting. Uh, we met a bunch of times and talked about it. Um, you know, I don't think I don't know that Richard changed anything script-wise, but he sure as hell brought everything necessary to the part, you know. Uh, I remember there was a, uh, the original script started with a bunch of psychiatrists sitting on a boat on Lake Winnipesaukee talking about the worst experiences that they'd ever had with, with uh, their patients, sort of one-upping each other. And with some as well, you know, none of that can top what happened to Leo Marvin and, and Bob, Bob Wiley. People's gone. What's that? And he points and says, "See that that chimney over there? And there's a, a just a chimney left from where a house burned down." He said, "That was Leo's house." And they're all go, "Oh my God!" And they go, "Leo Marvin, yeah, what an asshole! What happened to him?" And I remember Richard 
play an asshole. You know, an actor I think always has to think that their character is is the hero of their life, you know, as opposed to probably uh, a villain. So, uh, but that narration got that whole structure got cut. So, was it a problem? I think I I remember spending some time trying to convince Richard that you know he really wasn't an asshole. He was just had a different point of view. But uh, but he's he's a great guy and fun to work with. And, I think uh, well, Frank Oz, who directed, um, I think that was sort of one of his big, his, his first big feature films. Uh, he had been more known for, you know, The Muppets and uh, uh, working no, on those. He had done Little Shop of Horrors and yeah. the one with Steve Martin, the remake of Bedtime Story. Um, oh, House Guest, was that? No, um, it's two guys on this. It was originally Marlon Brando and David Niven. And it became Steve Martin and... Oh, Michael Caine. I think Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Scoundrels. Yeah, yeah. he had done that too. So he, he had, you know, had a couple of successes as a feature director. Uh, I'm curious, as far as um, your writing process, uh, you, you talked earlier about, you know, making lots of notes and then eventually sort of laying those out on the floor and, and uh, you know, sculpting the narrative from there. Uh, do you ever create sort of just a, a standard outline at all with with beats of you know from different acts or different scenes that you think uh, might sort of work and transition from one to another? Well, the way that process works is that, that all those notes coalesce into an outline similar to what you're talking about. You know, because by the time it's what I do is once all those <clears throat> strips have been laid out kind of in order on the floor, I. I put a, I, I tape them to uh, about ten of them at a time, or as many will fit on a page of uh, eight by ten page, and I put them in a in a three three wing ring binder, and you know open it up, and it's essentially a roadmap for the entire movie, and it's, the movie's almost written itself by that point. It's really just you know sort of getting rid of a lot of stuff, and but it's you know it'll say this you know because all all the notes get to be so specific. You know, this is what the school looks like. This is what the where we're going to start. Scene. This it, it's it's pretty complete by that point. So it's it's longer than the script. You know. So um, the only real problem is that my first draft tend to be 160 to 180 pages long. So like oh god, <laughs> I've got I've got, a, got a lot of stuff. But um, and that the downside of it. How do you go about um, sort of shrinking that longer, sort of maybe 180-page first draft into something that may be more compact into the 110, 120? Yeah, it's, it takes a while. You know, usually the first pack through reading it, I'll just see a, a bunch of scenes that just don't really need to be there. They're, they're nice to know that, that, you know, that they were there, that how transitions from scene A to scene C happened, but scene B is really just they call shoe left. So I can usually cut 30 pages out just on the first read through. So I'll get it from 180 to 150 and then it starts to get tougher. But I'll see places where characters are repeating themselves or repeating what another character says, you know, things like, so, you know, where are you going to go? Character goes, where am I going to go? Yeah, where are you going to go? Oh, go, go, you know, maybe that's the way 
Yeah, it's long, but we'll cut it down as opposed to anything over 130. They would say we're not even going to talk until you cut it down. So, and I remember <laughs> I was on the set and for a few days, and I had to come back to LA for something. When I got back, we had flipped over to doing nights, and Peter Weir was asleep in the aisle theater, waiting for a scene to be shot. You know, it was the middle of the night. I showed up and. It was late in the process. We were maybe only two weeks away from finishing shooting. And he said, oh, uh, I did, I, they sent your script to a thing called Barbara's Place, which was a script typing service back in the day. And he said, and it turns out 145 pages long. So you've got to cut 25 pages out of the script. And I said, Peter, we only 25 pages left to shoot. He went, uh, uh, well, it's a problem. I'm going to take a nap. See if you can figure it out. <laughs> and he laid back down and went back to sleep. And I sat there for a little while. And, uh, when he woke up, I said, you know, this this is undoable. We've we've shot. Anything, most of the stuff could cut is gone. It's already been shot. He went, yeah, yeah, all right, forget about it. That was that. But, it, you know, the movie is long. It's two hours and 20 minutes long. So, um, Do you think the, uh, the, the page a minute theory uh, always holds weight? Or is that sort of... Um... Yeah. doesn't take into account editing and sort of being able to shoot scenes in different ways that may not sort of approximate what's on the page? It's pretty rough. I mean, I've seen, it's approximately true, you know? I mean, I don't think it would have lasted this long as a, as a, as a, a you know, rule, a quote-unquote rule, if it hadn't been close. But, and back in the days, you know, in the old days with the studios for it was really pretty damn close, you know. But they've they've changed the format now. So actually, I think I think it's a little bit more than a page a minute. Um, feels like to me like about a minute ten per page. Uh, comedies will go a little bit faster, but uh, I've noticed that you know if you want a comedy that's going to turn out to be you know 110 minutes long, your script shouldn't be much more than 100 pages. Um, yeah, it's interesting how um, I think Aaron Sorkin, uh, I think for the Social Network, his scripts must. I think it was like 180 pages, and I think he told David Fincher to just have all the actors, you know, talk very fast. <laughs> <laughs> right, so. and, which they did, and it worked, you know. So, but if you, I think I remember seeing a draft of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is 190 pages long. Wow. But you know, it's the the spacing is amazing. It's just huge spaces but at the end of every scene where it'll you know skip four spaces and say cut to and then you know skip another four spaces and you start the next scene it's very every shot detailed out you know so it that you know that that page per minute certainly didn't work there but but i think in the in the readable form the format you give you know for people to read where you just don't want a lot of anything but just the the exposition and the and as little of that possible in the dialogue, yeah, a page a minute's pretty close. Yeah. Do you believe at all in um, in sort of writing character biographies or sort of creating um, sort of, you know, maybe even like behavior lists for characters to sort of develop them and even sort of maybe even try to find like ways to create unique dialogue to make them stand out? I don't do it conscious. I mean, I, I, I understand, once I understand a character's function in the movie, then I sort of and if I haven't done it already, just in the way I've created the thing, then I started looking around for somebody I know from my life who, you know, is, sort of fits fits the role, and I cast that person in the role, and that gives 
Yeah. I was curious, um, when you went to direct your first feature film, did that give you uh, a different perspective on the screenwriting process, having worked with so many directors and having seen them execute your script? Uh, did it sort of reinform sort of how you write, in a sense? Um, I get, I mean, it just, you know, it, certainly having worked with a bunch of directors really helpful to, to sort of, A, you know, be on the process and get comfortable with that. Uh, you know, but every movie is a different thing, you know has its own way that it wants to get done, the best way to try to do it. So, you know, other than the fact that, you know, I knew what the process was, unfortunately, I think I could have wished I'd a lot more some of the directors I've worked with, you know, in terms of how, how to make a movie, because there were, there were, you know, when you're the writer, you've got, you've got the director as a collaborator, and that's great. But when you're the right director, you're talking to yourself. Well, you get it with the actors, and you get it with the cinematographer, you get it with the producer, and you know, but there's no kind of one sort of central artist there to, to sort of balance things out. Um, Does that make you um, rethink at all when you're writing a script in terms of even seeing it, how it'll cut together, or thinking about how music may lay into a scene, or? I, you know, when I'm writing from the very first script I wrote, I always thought I was going to direct it. And I mean, I didn't really think that, but my basic feeling is, what am I doing? I'm, I'm in a sense like a, you know, like a stenographer watching the movie and just writing down what I see, and then you know that's what the, that's what the readers will read. And so you know, I, I would, <clears throat> I knew and was told, you know, don't put in a lot of camera angles. And 